The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, mentors and monsters and a hell of a party. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, we bring you a conversation between DJ Butler and Jane Linskold about Linskold's new novel, The Library of the Sapphire Wind, a portal fantasy that sees three women from our reality transported to the realm of overwear, where animals live like people. Once there, they team up with three of the denizens of that world to solve an ancient mystery that will rock overwear to its core. The novel is available now in trade paperback and ebook, and be sure to keep an eye out for The Aurora Borealis Bridge, the second volume in the series, which will come out later this year. And now, the news. Next month marks the release of the second novel in Tim Aker's Nightwatch series, which can best be described as Men in Black at the Ren Fair. Val Hellions follows Jonathan Rast and the Nightwatch team fighting even more supernatural baddies, keeping the world safe for the rest of us. If you can't wait for more Nightwatch action, head over to Bane.com and check out this month's free short story, The Barcadian Wild. A hell of a party. It looked like any other rural roadhouse party, a converted barn on the outskirts of a cornfield, neon beer signs, merrymakers drinking and dancing. But the Barcadian Wild was more than a good party. It was a disaster waiting to happen, the sort of disaster that calls for night watch. Do you prefer your books electronically? Do you like discounts? Well, head on over to Bain.com for our February Before Honor ebook sale. Honor Harrington may be the best military strategist in the Star Kingdom of Manticore, but she is also the heir to a noble legacy. This month, we're celebrating the tales in David Weber's landmark Honorverse that take place before Honor comes on the scene in On Basilisk Station. For the month of February, get $1 off previous entries in the Manticore Ascendant series, as well as the Young Adult Star Kingdom series featuring Honor's ancestor, Stephanie Harrington. The sale runs through February 28th, and these discounts are good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Uh, hi, this is uh, Dave Butler. Uh, I'm here with Jane Linskull to talk about her new novel, Library of the Sapphire Wind. It's out now in trade paperback and all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, of course. Uh, Jane Linskold is the award-winning New York Times bestselling author of over 30 novels, including the six-volume Firekeeper Saga, aka The Wolf Books, the two uh, Athenor novels, Changer and Changer's Daughter, the three volumes of the Breaking the Wall series, the Artemis Awakening series, and many more. She has also written in collaboration with David Weber, so Bane, of course, Fire Season and Precad Wars, and Roger Zelazny, Donner Jack and Lord Demon. When she's not writing or reading, she's likely being ordered about by a variety 
of small animals. Jane, welcome uh, to the radio hour. Thank you, thank you, Dave. Um, and uh, we were talking earlier off camera about the uh, that bio. There are actually eight firekeeper books now, and oh. uh, and it's quite possible that some of the small animals may decide to make a cameo. Wow, one of my cats is a firm believer that anything going on is about her. So. Fantastic. Um, well, let's talk about Library of the Sapphire Wing, which I've had the great delight of reading. Um, so let me let me open with the setup, which is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a high adventure book. The setup is very quick. We get into it right away. Uh, we started a, a book club uh, with, uh, it's Valentine's Day and and the, the protagonists suspect that's why only three of them show up to the book club. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's uh, three ladies, Meg, Peg, and Tessa, who goes by Peg, uh, uh, the name bestowed on her by her, uh, her, her book club cohorts. Um, and as I think it's Tag starts to read one of the books uh, to, to find an example of prose out of a romance novel they're reading, uh, different words, sort of prophetic sounding words come out of her mouth and suddenly they're in a fantasy world. Um, so uh, there's so much I want to talk about. Let's start with the protagonist. Tell, tell me, you're, you're, you're very strictly uh, consistent. The main point of view character here is Tag. Uh, tell us about the about the team, though, and, and uh, who they are, what they do, and maybe especially about Teg. Okay, um, let's see, a whole, whole bunch of things. Um, the first one, Meg, going by age, is a 70-something retired librarian uh, who has moved to the fictional town of Tyma, Pennsylvania, uh, because she wants an active retirement, and that's what Taima is marketing itself as. Um, she is uh, superficially buttoned down, but uh, has a lot going on in her interior landscape. Uh, Peg is the middle one. She's in somewhere in her 60s, though she will not admit to where. Um, she is a... Uh, former flower child, uh, trier of everything experimental, um, defines herself as a former nightclub singer, now mother of many, married three times, uh, apparently countless children, grandchildren, stepchildren, etc., cetera, uh, which has made her a jack of all trades because she's a very involved person. So every time anyone in her life gets involved in anything, Peg gets involved in it too. Uh, Tessa Brown slash Teg is the youngest, the only one who isn't more or less retired, though one can't ever say Peg, you, you don't retire from motherhood, so Peg, Peg doesn't have a retirement date on her profession. Um, but uh, Teg is on sabbatical from her job as an archaeologist at uh, Tama University and uh, is somewhere in her 50s still professionally involved, but definitely going through a lot of uh, exactly where do I want my life to go, the choices I've made with my life, taking a look at the upcoming next chapter, and not at all sure where she wants to take it. Very good. Very good. And Meg is the one, I'm, I'm remembering this correctly, right? Meg is the one who is also a fencer about halfway through, we find. That's Peg. Oh, Peg. Is Peg. That's right. Of the Jack of all one of her kids got involved and then she took That's it up again. 
Uh, one of the things that's interesting about fencing and makes it actually a, a reasonable hobby activity for a 60 something is it is except as long as you have good knees, it's a good low impact sport. Yeah. Um, and like many of her generation, uh, Peg very heavily imprinted on Lord of the Rings. And so much more fun than doing aerobics to go out there and, and fence and it comes in very handy. Yeah. I, I kind of like in the cover art, it's a liberty, but it's a fun liberty. Uh, Tom Kidd, who did the cover art, uh, put knitting needles in uh, Peg's hands rather than a fencing foil. She certainly would do that if, if the need arose. Um, she's usually knitting if, uh, if she can't be doing anything else. She's a, she's a fidget. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Uh, and uh, now, uh, of the three, so you chose, uh, you chose Teg to, to follow the story along in her head. And any particular reasons why you made her the point of view character so consistently? Um, I'm a big fan of point of view. It's yeah. possibly the biggest problem I have with um, working with other writers is I'm, I've always written very tightly locked to character point of view, whether I'm writing in first person or third person. Uh, I have occasionally used omniscient narrator, but I really believe a book is best served for me as a writer, at least if I lock myself into a tight point of view rather than the, and though our heroes didn't know, yeah. over the ridge was coming. Yes. Um, you know, at, there are times that that's necessary, but on the whole, I live and breathe the story a lot better if I'm locked in a point of view. Um, I never intended Library of the Sapphire Wind to get as long as it did. Um, it It's being published as two books in part because uh, by the time I was done with my first rush, rough draft, I was at 150,000 words. Um, by the time I revised, I was closer to 180. By the time I finished my, um, anyhow, it, it got big. But uh, one of the things that I feel strongly about is that if you're going to have more than one point of view character, that point of view character should really be a three-dimensional person, not just a talking head for that one moment. So since I didn't think it was going to be as long a book as it was, I focused in on Teg in part because um, as an archeologist, she could provide a lot of the point of view for some of the archeological material that's really crucial to the book. Um, so instead of having a lot of, as you know, Bob moments where Teg has to explain archeological stuff to everybody else around them, it can go flittering through her head no. um, pretty naturally um, rather than having to, to rely on info dumps. Because from the very start, this was going to be an archeological adventure. So making the archaeologist the point of view character was really important. Yeah, now that's interesting. So um, I want to follow that through. But first, though, I want to also make this observation. I think one of the reasons I uh, tag also <laughs> is a vice, which sort of 
gets her into mild conflict with people on uh, on uh, on her quest, which I found very uh, endearing and humanizing. Right? She mm-hmm. uh, she's a smoker, and it's sort of like a point of challenge. Uh, although in some moments it becomes a sort of bonds with some of the other characters over it too. I thought it was, yeah. she felt very um, fully fleshed out. Um, yeah, but, but let's ask, so on the point of, so uh, archaeology, anthropology, um, Egyptology. So uh, there, there's, uh, first of all, I found the, the, the anthropology pretty credible, sort of, right? You have this, this character, the point of view character uh, is seeing things and then extrapolating from them and saying, well, you know, probably this, is, this reflects X in their society. Or, or, or why in their society. So I thought that was really enjoyable and, 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 and smart. Um, there's also specifically a fair amount of Egypt in here. Uh, so uh, t- do you, what's, your, what's your background or interest or why, why Egypt? Well, okay, let's, let's bounce around a couple of things here. Um, <clears throat> why Egypt, I'll come back to, but for the anthropology, Uh, archaeology aspect. I've been married to an archaeologist for the last 25 years. Um, I I know how they think. I know uh, I've been a volunteer occasionally on his field projects. Uh, I certainly have listened to shop talk, um, a lot of it, over the years. I enjoy it. One of the things that's kind of terrific about our relationship is before we ever met, we each had a hobbyist interest in the other's profession. Um, Jim uh, had been, uh, has actually written several novels that got put on side and now that he's retired, he's back to working on one of them, which is so cool and such fun. Um, And in my case, I've always really been interested in archeology, span anthropology. I grew up in Washington, DC. My folks were super, fond of taking us to museums when we were little. Uh, The Smithsonian, especially natural history and history and technology were just regular go-to places. Um, And when I was pretty small and the Tutankhamun exhibit made its first tour through, uh, they took us to it. Then I saw it again when I was in college living in New York. And uh, when I was at at Fordham in New York, I uh, would regularly go down to uh, the Met and they have an entire reconstructed Egyptian temple in there. Another reason for Egypt is I, I learned even more about it many years ago when the world was young and I wrote a novel called The Buried Pyramid. Um, so I have a lot of pretty good Egyptology research up my sleeve from a novel I wrote Oh gosh, it's getting probably frighteningly close to 18, 19 years ago now, but, uh, but the interest was there and got fed. So it was a good thing to draw on. Another reason is for reasons that will become much more apparent in the second book, Aurora Borealis Bridge. Um, it isn't a coincidence yeah. that uh, various things remind various things of various things. And that's all I'll say rather than be too spoilery. Yeah. But it isn't a coincidence or just the fact that I like it or lazy world building. I'm, I'm afraid I've never been 
one of those writers who builds my imaginary world by cutting and pasting from, well, this is Scotland, but I'll call it Nina land. And this is England and I'll call it whoopu whoopu. Um, I've always, uh, I've always world built from the, the bottom up. Yeah. No, it's clearly, it's clearly the opposite of lazy. Um, not all, I mean, it's easy to put a pyramid in a story, right? But you're, your heroes, and we haven't even got to the other half of the hero team yet, but they're they're pursuing an artifact. They want to reconstruct an artifact, which is which is named Bod Jed of the Weaver, which which uh, is an I I don't want I want I won't interpret it because maybe I'm giving away spoilers if I do, but it is very clearly an Egyptian name. Uh, very good for you. Good yeah. For you. Oh, I've got my my Egyptology shelf is over there. I've got a few grammars and stuff. Yeah. So okay. I I hit that and I thought oh. Yeah. Very cool. Um, okay. All right. So, uh, so, so the team, right, comes through into a, into a, and it's, it's a portal fantasy, you know, you, it comes in into a, this fantasy world um, because they've been summoned. Uh, there, there's a, there's an Oracle uh, and uh, three petitioners have come to this Oracle because they need help. Uh, and what happened was Magtag and Peg come uh, up here. So uh, tell us maybe if you would a bit about uh, the three petitioners. Who, who's the other half of the adventuring team? Let me backtrack just slightly and say that Library of the Sapphire Wind was written in part because I, there, several years ago, there was a real flurry of portal fantasies out there, some quite good, some quite terrible, uh, but always featuring people who were Oh, somewhere between about maybe 20 and five. And on the good ones, I was, well, I guess the long story short is I found myself going, A, I want to go on an adventure. And I feel like because I'm older than 20, I'm not allowed. And B, um, why the heck would anybody summon a bunch of children? They're not horribly useful. So the more I thought about it, I realized there was a real hole that with the exception of some almost more dystopian portal fantasies like uh, Steve Donaldson's Thomas Covenant, Mm -hmm. we have very few portal fantasies out there that feature adults, competent adults, and uh, rather than kids, who seem to spend most of their time going, I want to go home. Um, So I wanted to get rid of all of that. I wanted a portal fantasy with competent adult characters who rather than wanting to go home would want to get into the adventure and have, have a good time. So that over, I said, why not make it my age and up? I I know lots of very competent uh, older people who would love to go on a portal fantasy and be a lot more helpful than a 16-year-old who is mostly interested in who their next romance will be. On the other hand, I like young people too, a lot. I used to be a college professor, and um, so it became a natural fit to make the other side of the equation my my as they're called in the book inquisitors um uh the youngest is 19 the oldest is 20 something uh 
and have them, uh, again, be competent individuals, but who need help. So they vary from the youngest is 19. Uh, her name is Varese. She's a child of privilege and wealth. And her problem is that her, uh, her younger sister is missing. Her parents don't talk about it. She can't deal with the fact that there's a person in her life who is not only missing, but deny her very existence denied. Uh, <clears throat> then that we have uh, uh, Grunwald, who is kind of a um, late college age student, early 20s. His problem is, well, this is a bit of a spoiler, but his problem is his dad is, uh, is dying of a terminal disease. And again, he feels like, why isn't anyone doing more? Why especially aren't my parents doing more about this? Why are they seemingly sitting around waiting for dad to die? And then the last one and the one who is the driving force behind um, them going to this shrine is Zerak, who is a mage in training. And about a year ago, his master vanished and no one has been able to track him along, but down. And Zarek has been uh, determinedly verging on fanatically searching for him. And at the point at which he ropes his childhood friends, Grunwald and Varese into the search, he, uh, he's given up on the ability to do it alone and decides to go to a shrine and try and get extra help. Uh, each of them are, again, I like competent individuals. Um, each of them has some very valuable things to contribute. And each of them, and I won't go into what and why, but my, my mentor characters catch on right away, is lying as to exactly what they're after or is, is uh, politely retaining some information. As a secret. Um, and yet the mentors, rather than that turning the mentors off, it makes them think they need help even more if they're not that. So we have on the one side, the three holdbacks, because in this culture actually acknowledges something that I think would be nice if our culture did. Is sometimes people have things going on in their life history that keeps them from moving forward actually recognize social position. Um, and so the three holdbacks and the three mentors. Yeah, there's a, uh, in, in, this, in this fantasy setting, um, there's no automatic graduation to adulthood. That's, that's an interesting point, right? In, in, that, in that people have been saying for decades that, that modern Western society has lost rites of passage that that we had uh, and yeah. we people maybe they do other things or they just kind of find their way without it um uh, or they suffer right uh in but in this in the the in this fantasy land uh you be you you earn adulthood people expressly when you've done an adult thing uh that's it you know you're now an adult uh which i think is right. is, is lovely i um 
Uh, it may be worth saying that the the three inquisitors, the three holdbacks, they they are people. From the point of view, from Teg's point of view, they 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 look like a person with an animal's head. Um, that's yeah. That's not how they see themselves uh, right. at all. That you know, Varys looks like a fox-headed young woman, but there is no fox out there, right? That's that she, she doesn't say, well, you know, I I'm I relate to some animal species. Uh, so there are some kind of funny awkward moments uh, around that. Yeah, uh, and I really, the theory anthropic element was one I really wanted to work with. Um, and I finally think that culturally we've hit a point that we can write a book with theory anthropic characters and not have it be automatically um, dismissed as a children's story. Um, it's, it's a kind of odd thing, but with a few rare exceptions, uh, Larry Niven's Kazin being one, uh, in even in science fiction and fantasy, which prides itself about being more open-minded than most other kinds of fiction, if you put in either animal characters or um, theory anthropic characters, you automatically slid down the respect scale toward, uh, um, oh, this must be a book meant for kids. But I took a look at the world around us and that's just not the case anymore. Go on any social media site and you will see perfectly respectable adults with animal avatars on their screen, computer games meant for adults, uh, role-playing games meant for adults. Uh, I, you know, I could keep going, yeah. um, but it's, it's crossed the line and I decided this is a place I'd wanted to go for a long time and and now, finally, I thought that there was a marketplace that was ready to accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Therianthropic, meaning a character who is part therion, beast, and part anthropos, uh, human, right? Right. Um, and, yeah. And, and mine are, they have the heads, the tails. Uh, body coloration will vary according to what their, their animal root creature is. But as far as hands and feet and legs and everything else, we don't have, say, um, someone who's canine but has a backward jointed leg. Um, yeah. They, you know, the, the legs and knees and everything would follow the human model. Yeah. And since you love Egypt too, um, that's been around for a long time. Yeah. And it's really only our modern society that dismisses this numinous, mythic, powerful joining of, of qualities as something only good for kids. I wanna reclaim that ground. Yeah, so I was in fact gonna say, uh, you say maybe we have, we have reached a point where adults can see themselves in animals. Um, and, and I want to say, maybe, we, maybe we're coming back to it, right? Because it's not just ancient Egypt. Think about like stories about coyote uh, oh, yeah. as, as, a, as a deity, as, a, as, as part of Native American um, spiritual landscape, right? Um, oh, there's or, a lot more. I could, I could bore you, bore yeah. you mindless on, on the subject, I assure you. Yeah. Uh, it, it is funny if you read what I have done, you go read 19th or even 20th century Egyptologists talk, trying to write about Egyptian religion. One of the things they struggle with is 
they find it sort of repulsive or it's 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 problematic it's it's ugly it's crass that the egyptians had animal parts in in their gods right and so everyone's got to write what they think the egyptians meant right. um, it's got to all be symbolic mm. right right, right. But, you know one of the things that's that of course you know we'll we'll skip religion as a hot topic here but that comes out of the the religions of the book in general discomfort with anything that isn't uh, isn't human, right? And even with the human, right? Um, uh, and it and then you seed in the ancient Greek and its constant battle against mind and body. You know which one is dominant, which one is the self. Yeah, and all of that feeds into our modern culture and makes the uh, the whole trope one that uh, is an uphill swim to deal with. Yeah. It's so one that, I love. Yeah. Well, so maybe this is interesting. So maybe we're at an interesting time where we can, we can reclaim some old ground. I'd like that. So um, I love having the three women as your sort of core protagonist characters for a couple reasons. One, it's a little bit, kind of halfway through it struck me as kind of like you know uh so many fairy stories there there's the three fairy godmothers or, you know, or some similar character who, who gives a blessing or a, or a, you know a curse or a consultation or something and then disappears this is sort of it's a little bit the three fairy godmothers are having the adventure uh yeah. so it's just it's cool and like at the one hand old and the other hand new i, I quite enjoyed it but it also sets up interesting kind of plots uh, because uh, we deal with things like cross-generational, and we haven't really got to the main plot yet at all, but, but, but themes of, you know, conflict between old and young or, you know, openness uh, across generations. Um, I guess I don't have a question, uh, but if you have any comment about that, I'd love, I'd love to hear it. Uh, gosh, I don't even know where to start. It's, as I guess the best way to say is one reason I like anchoring myself very firmly in point of view is it makes it more natural and more automatic for certain topics to come up. And even though Teg is my point of view character, that doesn't mean that I, I can't think like everybody else at need. So it becomes a very natural thing to have these generational differences and uh, opinions and you know the automatic uh, the automatic I, hey I've been young too that's one of the great great advantages to being my age in writing is you know I've been young and because I taught uh, taught college I never really lost contact with with the younger half and the younger half's mindset so one of the things that's always interesting is watching each group of 20-somethings thinking they're inventing the wheel. <laughs> they're darling, but, uh, you know, every so often Jim and I stop and say to a, a younger relative or friend, well, actually, that isn't as new as you think. It's been around. Yeah. It just had a different name. Yeah. So... It was fun, it was natural, but it was never intended to be a um, didactic point. Yeah. Just it's the way 20-somethings are, are wonderful. 
Um, yeah. On the one hand, you know, having read an awful lot of freshman English composition essays, um, it's a, it, on the one hand, they can be brilliant, uh, right up there with anybody of any age. And on the other hand, they're the same person may in their next essay stumble into, you go, what? They're not aware of that? They don't know that? So it's, um, it's a great age to have uh, my, other, my other half of the characters be in because it meant they didn't have to be like, you know, little kids just worried about, you know, being away from home for the first time. Um, but at the other hand, they can have some blind sides about how they are perceiving the universe because they don't have enough time and experience yeah. to realize what, how, how, how what they're going through is something a lot of people go through. Yeah, it's and, and it's uh, and I it's, it doesn't feel didactic at all. It feels like it was very naturally out of the characters. Uh, and it also gets interestingly, has interesting sort of real uh, verisimilitudinous, real, real life kind of complexity, right? Because on the one hand, there's sort of a direct clash, like, for example, you know, there are no other humans. Everyone is a, is a therianthrope. Everyone's a, a beast person. Uh, and so, you know, the, the young, the inquisitors, the petitioners response to that is, okay, we got to lock these three ladies in the ship so that no one can see them, right? There, there's a kind of the condescension of youth towards age, right? Uh, and that, so that's a the moment they have to kind of negotiate. But it gets more complex when the petitioners, the inquisitors' parents become involved. Oh, yeah. It turns out they're part of the backstory. And then there are moments where you get almost like that kind of complex dynamic of, of uh, you know, uh, child, uh, parent, grandparent a little bit right uh where you're, you're kind of negotiating and the and the, the and the grandparent the the women are saying well you know let's not jump to conclusions let's try to show mercy to your parents too right uh it, it's it's a space that i don't think i've read another fantasy book that really gets into that space well thank you thank you as i say there are advantages to finally having silver in my hair and enough time to have have watched a lot of this stuff yeah yeah um okay so so these three youths uh present their three their three issues right uh the illness the the missing sister etc uh and the and the solution uh or the pointer towards the solution is the the verse that we got right in the i think it was the very first end of the first chapter right tag yep. tag meant to read a paragraph out of a romance novel and she reads these six lines instead three of which basically identify the three problems. Um, mm -hmm. And then the, the back half of the stanza basically says, go through the door uh, uh, of the library of the Sapphire Wind. These things and more you will find when you pass through the doorways of the library of the Sapphire Wind. Tell us about the library of the Sapphire Wind. What, what is that? Why is it difficult to pass through the door? It's gone. Um, that, that's one of my, my favorite moments early in the book is like, oh, we've got it all together. All we have to get, well, it's a problem. It, about 25 years ago, it was completely destroyed. Um, and, uh, in fact, if you're interested in the 
story of how the light, at least a little bit about how the Library of the Sapphire Wind came to be destroyed. I just learned today that on uh, Bain.com, a short story I wrote at Tony Weisskopf's um, request, she wanted something else set in this world, but we both agreed it had to be a prequel. Um, so I've got a story set on the day that the Library of the Sapphire Wind goes down. Uh, it does not feature any of the characters from the novels and, uh, and none of the characters in the short story appear in, uh, in the novels. So, but it does give a, uh, a hands-on what happened on the day the Library of the Sapphire Wind was destroyed. Now, what's the, um, what's the short story title that will help people find it? Okay, the short story is called Fire Bright Rain. Fire Bright Rain. And I would have I would have sent you the information, but I only found out a couple of hours ago myself <laughs> um, that it was that it was up. But so that is one of the problems with passing through the doorways of the library of the Sapphire Wind. The library was completely destroyed. No one even knows where the doors are. Um, Zerak, in his role as young mage, knows that it was a library dedicated to the magical arts, but, uh, and he knows that it was really thoroughly, utterly destroyed, and that although various groups of treasure hunters and such have looked for it, they have not, uh, no one has, as far as he knows, ever gotten inside. Certainly no uh, artifacts or books or anything like that. It is supposed to be a horribly dangerous area. And uh, most of the people who know anything about it have, uh, <laughs> have, well, there's a question as to how many are even telling the truth on whether they found what they found. So the first, the first thing my six protagonists have to do is find out how to find the library. They know the general geographic area, but how do you find something that is that thoroughly gone? And this is where being married to an anthropologist and having you know, watched what archeologists do and the deductions they draw um, from very minimal things. Uh, let, me, let me make this a nice realistic archeological quest rather than the hand wave, hand wave you find in so many fantasy novels where they just conveniently find uh, exactly what they need. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and destroyed um, relatively recently, right? Some of the characters say, oh, I think I know people, I can't remember if it's, it's their parents or someone has talked about it. Maybe it's the owl they meet up there with up front as uh, is always, you know, referred to it as if during his lifetime it was right. it was accessible. It was about 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh, one, one of my biggest problems with science fiction and fantasy on the whole, uh, and since you obviously like ancient history, um, I'm sure you'll, you'll understand what I'm getting at, but is the very unrealistic sense of time. We have all of these millennial old you know, multi-millennial old. It's like science fiction and fantasy writers lose control of what time really is and what numbers mean. Um, you know, if I had a nickel for every 
science fiction novel I've read with massive fleets of ships. It's like the supply chain just required to create this makes it, you know, <laughs> go out the window. And the same with time. Um, realistically, and, and I'm, people can argue with me, that's what panels are for. But realistically, in our culture, we have two continuous civilizations uh, that maybe are 5,000 years long. And if you look at their history, they're not. China is one and Egypt is the other. And in both cases, if you bother to take a look at the actual history, you'll see that nope, there is no continuous history there. Multiple what, hap what happens is instead a series of conquests and as has been frequently said about China, China just succeeded in conquering its conquerors. So whichever group came and conquered the resident Chinese group within a couple of generations was adopting Chinese culture, adding to it and moving ahead. The same with Egypt. Uh, people very lightly talk about old kingdom, new kingdom, middle kingdom. They ignore the fact that there are large chunks that to this day uh, we, we have losses of. Um, so I wanted a realistic timetable. This is something that happened 25 years ago. And to be honest, 25 years is plenty of time for most people to forget uh, a lot of the details. Uh, you know, Jim and I are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary in two weeks, I think it is. And we, we so we've been looking at all the things that happened in 25 years and it's ample time. Yeah. It's ample time. Yeah. Um, yeah, very good. So, um, the uh they need a means of transport yeah grunwald's family is wealthy they have a flying ship so they the heroes they go have at least two yeah yes. that's right they have more than one yes <laughs> so uh so the team goes and and uh and and steals the ship uh yeah i love it too tell me why tell me why you love it tell me why you picked a flying ship Oh boy, um, from the practical standpoint, I thought about the logistics of having three characters past the first bloom of youth, mount up on horses or the local equivalent thereof. And it was just no fun. Um, you know, it was hard enough for Frodo and company and they were all young and Hale, well, or at least physically young, even if they were once again impossibly old. Yes. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> I have problems with Tolkien's elves. No matter how much I love it, uh, love love those books, that I, I, I have problems with the fact that they seem very young in their ability to retain information and emotionally cope with things. No. Um, but. So one of them was just practicality. Um, two was, hey, I was writing this book for me. Um, in fact, my initial plan was, I wasn't even sure I was gonna publish it. I just wanted to sit down and have fun. So let's put in a flying ship. Um, and 
And then uh, Slice Wind sort of began taking on its own role in the whole, whole thing. Um, and after a while, I couldn't imagine the story without it. I love Slice Wind. Uh, Tom Kidd's depiction is uh, perhaps a little, not well, I didn't provide him with art. I love it. I love what he did. Um, but I also, at uh, Jim and I sat down at one point and looked up various uh, single-masted sailing vessels and uh, drew maps of the under under deck compartments and everything to make sure everything fit together. Um, it was a nice solution to a lot of problems. How can they carry enough gear? How can they get from point A to point B quickly enough? Uh, I didn't have to spend all my time, you know, with two weeks later, they were arrived at X and had another six months to go before they could get to Y. So it let the, it let the story move too. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, th there's a, there's a kind of aesthetic, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's a little reminiscent, not, not, uh, I want to be careful that I don't say this wrong. Um, you know, JK Rowling setting has a very kind of a certain kind of aesthetic It's very self-consistent and has a kind of a, a twee English feel. And there's something a little like that going on here. I'm not saying it's derivative of Hogwarts at all, but there's a kind of a, there's a kind of a charm about the way things work. You know, slice wind is part of that, but also as, as they're, go, as they're going to fly away from the state, uh, the estate, they, they, uh, some of the guardians that try to keep them uh, include one that is like a, uh, it's like a giant shag carpet that rises up out of the forest to, to attack them. Um, and there are, uh, 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 no, I'm, I got to know here what they're called, but I'm forgetting it, but, but you'll remind me. Uh, they're sort of like a large bird size, but they're like a, a hypodermic needle they're for the tranquilizers. Yeah. It's like a, it's like yeah, a giant. Tranquilizer darters. Yeah. That's it. Uh, it's like a giant drug filled mosquito hawk thing. Uh, and uh, Grunewald's got a, um, it is Grunewald that has like the sort of pet mini pterodactyl, right? Uh, Heru, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Harold uh, yes. Yeah, so there's a uh, so there's a there's a lovely kind of charm, uh, which which I don't want to I want to make it sound small. It's a big epic adventure, but it's got a fun kind of cuteness to it. It's not. It's it was never meant to be cute, but what it was is it's actually um, a very huge uh, element in the story that when you think about it none of the native creatures, not even Heru, who is described as being as much like a pterodactyl as like anything, but is not necessarily described as being a pterodactyl. Um, none of the animals or plants in this world are from our world, which yeah. makes the fact that Varese looks distinctly like a red fox. Grunwald has the head of a a stag. Uh, Zerak is a sort of scraggly maned young lion growing into his, his mane. Um, it's actually a very important element in the book. Why? In a world where nothing else translates from our world. 
that meant I had to really stretch to world build, as I said, from the ground up to create an entire different biome that would not be, oh, those are just deer, but they're green, um, et cetera. You'll notice there's a lot more creatures that are uh, insectoid, reptilian. Uh, you haven't met the, the most amazing one yet um, who, who appears in, um, in the second book. Uh, the, well, I won't do spoiler, but, but it actually is a very important element in the book and something that once Meg, Peg, and Teg have been there long enough, they start wondering about why is it that our young people, you know, match from our world, so do most of the population, but nothing else is even remotely like. Yeah. And, and that's far from cute. It's actually a huge um, stand up and take notice, boys and girls. We're not in Kansas anymore in a big way. What's going on here? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I love it. Um, I don't want to go too far into the plot. There are like this is this is a story where there's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the backstory is disputed or hidden. Uh, right. And so there's an element of like investigating what did happen 25 years ago, who did what, why did they do it? Clearly, mm -hmm. much most of that's going to be resolved in the second book. We get some answers uh, up front. A lot of answers. I, I believe firmly in giving answers. Yeah. If honestly, if we were, if you're, I don't know how long you've been in publishing, but you know, I don't mind that these are being published as two shorter books. But back when I started writing, and publishing in the late 1980s, early 1990s, this would have been published as one enormous doorstop book. Uh, it's something I have a little bit of a, uh, hey, wake up and smell the coffee moment that I'd like more people to be aware of. My bio says I've got 30 something novels, but if published today, each of the Firekeeper books would have been published as two. Uh, so those original six Firekeeper novels would have been 12. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my dearly beloved Roger Zelazny, uh, his Amber books would have probably been published as two, yeah. not yeah. 10. Um, so I, there, a lot of the answers are left for the second book, in part because of the changes in demands of readers, they don't want something that huge unless uh, you know, a, a few authors have been sort of legacied into it. Um, they were known for writing doorstops, so they, get, they keep writing doorstops. But um, so I didn't withhold as a teaser, but it's a reality that bookshelves do not, I mean, bookstores on the whole don't wanna give three or four inches of shelf space to one book. One book, yeah, that's interesting. Interesting publishing point. So, um, so I just want my the people listening to this to to understand. I'm. I really would have put it all, but in the first hundred thousand and hundred and four thousand words, if I could, but I couldn't, which is why there's another hundred and four thousand words coming. But it's coming pretty fast, right? It's later this year. Yes. Yeah. Oh That's yeah, Tony was phenomenal. Um, she the. Both books were written, and when she made her offer to me, she said, I want to bring them both out 
within two months of each other. Um, so Library of the Sapphire Wind is going to be formally available on February 1st and Aurora Borealis Bridge will be available April 1st. Yeah, so cool. you'll have time to read the first one and the next one will be there available for pickup. You don't have to sit for a year and wait. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think you and I in the schedule of interviews, I think you and I will be talking again in something like six or eight weeks. Uh, oh, you, oh or, good. That'll be fun. I didn't know that. Terrific. Yeah. I'm very excited to read the second half. <laughs> um, I mean, there's one more last, I don't know, comment. You can, re you can react, of course. But I, I love the fact that it matters that the library is a library. Oh, yeah. Right? It's not just that it's a place because... Uh, you get you get kind of a quest format where it's okay. We got to do a series of things, okay. Once they're in the library, and and when they do the first thing, the library responds by producing an expert, saying, "Look, yeah. this is the librarian that is now going to help you mm -hmm. figure out the answers that you're looking for." Right? And I thought that was uh, uh, I thought well, a I miss libraries. I like libraries so much more than I like Google. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but I just thought it was wonderful that the, it matters that it's a library. Yeah. Um, I have, a like you, a warm, and, a warm relationship. As a very shy child uh, in, in grammar school, um, the library was my go-to place, my dive-into place. I attended a very small grammar school and... Uh, in seventh and eighth grade, I was the person who gave the librarian her, her lunch break. So, you know, at 12 and 13 years old, I, I had a whole library to myself. And years later, when I went there um, to my sister, younger sister attended the same school, eight years younger than I am. And I saw the librarian and she said, I'm still finding books that you were the last person to check them out. Um, I have good friends who are librarians. I think librarians are great. One of my favorite moments in the book is early on when uh, Meg, hearing, hearing the need in the three younger people's voices is the one, first one to step for, forward and essentially say, well, maybe we should listen. I've spent so much of my life and, you know, say, answering that question, you know, can I help you? And one of them looks at her and says, oh, are you an oracle? She says, no, I'm a librarian. <laughs> and, you know, so the Library of the Sapphire Wind was never going to just be the destination. Okay, now here we go. And here are your three file cards with your answers. It, it becomes um, home base. And Sapphire Wind is definitely an increasingly problematic character because Sapphire Wind has an agenda of Sapphire Wind's own. And, uh, and the more the characters realize this, the more especially Peg and Teg are really worried about it. Yeah. And then there's the question of the archived, which I never really get to address in, in full detail, unfortunately. That would have taken another book. But uh, it's a very unusual library. I don't think there's there are even in the wonderful troves of fantasy libraries out there. I don't think there's one quite like this. Yeah. 
Sapphire Wind being, being the, as you say, the genius loci, the sort of the demigod or the, the, the magical spiritual, the personification, the, the library is a person. Yes, and, and Sapphire Wind has very distinct opinions about, yeah. uh, about what people should and should not be doing. And it goes far beyond, don't raise your voice in the quiet rooms. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Well, Jane, thank you very much. Is there anything else you feel like readers should know? Uh, anything else you'd like to add about the about the book? Um, let's see. I always get asked, what age do you write for? And my answer is I write for anybody who can read. But on the other hand, um, I can say if you're uncomfortable about graphic violence or gratuitous sex, uh, that, that I've never... I am perfectly content with writing violence when necessary, uh, sex scenes when necessary, but I have never been comfortable with, oh, we've got to plug that in because um, that'll get us more readers. Um, it's, I, I, I like to think of this as a swashbuckling adventure fantasy that the more you think about it, the more you realize there's an awful lot to think about, but you can just go along, climb on the flying ship, join, six incredibly likable people who I would, hey, I'd go, you know, as long as I could bring Jim with me and the cats, you know, I'd be like, okay, um, I'm, I'm, I'm on. But you'd leave and, the guinea pigs. Oh no, they could come along too. They're small okay. and, uh, and, and such. But what I'm saying is that uh, that's actually one of the questions my, my various mentors have to make is, you know, we've got a life, but this is another interesting life. Where are we going? What are we doing? So like I say, you can read it as just a nice swashbuckling adventure fantasy, or you can, uh, it, it might start you thinking. Yeah, that's fantastic. So good, I'm glad we'll be able to talk again. It should be fun. Well, I look forward to that as well as to reading the second half. I'm very excited. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it gets really interesting there. Okay, so, don't spoil it for me. I got that coming up in a few weeks. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, once again, the book is Library of the Sapphire Wind, out now from Bain Books in trade, paper, and ebook. Uh, hey, uh, uh, Jane, thank you so much for your time uh, today. Thank you, and pleasure. enjoy your new you, your Utah winter. And now another installment of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Okay, Tyler said as he gazed around the stupidly huge interior of the battle station. This is just silly. There was some remaining atmosphere. It gave the interior a slightly yellowish cast, what you could see of the interior, because... Big, huh? Nathan said. He'd accepted Tyler's offer of the ride in the Starfire, since it was much more comfortable than a regular shuttle. Cutting the door had gone easier than expected. With 92 VDAs working on the door, it had been done on schedule. They'd even managed to park the Troy before they were done. Then they had to get it open. 
It was three kilometers across on the exterior with three bits that might someday be hinges and a latch. It was a kilometer and a half thick and a kilometer wide on the interior. It was less a door than a cork. In keeping with the enormity of everything else about Troy, it weighed 41 billion tons. It took a lot of tugs. It stuck to the side of Troy pretty well, though. They both had notable gravity. Not that, Tyler said. I expected big. What I wasn't expecting was how hard it was going to be to navigate. You can't see a damn thing. Light did not bend in space. Shadows were absolute blackness, without any of the relief caused by diffusion of atmosphere on Earth. The door wasn't pointed anywhere near the sun. The entire interior was in shadow. Tyler could see a shuttle doing an interior inspection across the seven-kilometer sphere they were calling the main bay. It was a speck, and the only reason he could see it at all was that it had a nine-million-candle-power spotlight on it, which was reflecting off the interior walls. What's first on the agenda? Tyler said. Start cutting the plug where we're going to insert the crew quarters, Nathan said. Then there's the air and water tanks. That's going to be interesting. We're going to have to bounce the VDAs in. We're also going to start on burning the firing ports. Right, Tyler said. Two more things to put on the list. We're going to have to be able to rotate this thing. Maneuver is out of the question, but it has to be able to rotate at some point. We need some interior levers, big ones. Use the wall material or what you're taking out, whatever makes more sense. I take it I don't have to suggest you be careful when you're doing this. Anyone stumbles through a VDA and... You don't have to mention it, Nathan said. We shudder about it every day. The power involved in this project is just crazy. Second thing, I'm going to talk to Brian about another special project. What's that? Nathan said. Finding out how many laser engineers it takes to screw in a light bulb. You want a what? Brian asked. You're insane, Tyler said. I know, but you can't see your hand in front of your face in there. It's a safety issue. We need a light. You're not asking for much, are you? Brian said. You want a light that will illuminate a seven and a half kilometer diameter sphere. That's four and a half miles. Very little diffraction, Tyler pointed out. It really doesn't have to be that bright. There's nothing to attenuate it. There's what looks sort of like an atmosphere in there, but you'd die pretty quick if you tried to survive on it. Besides the fact that it's mostly ammonia, point is, you're right, Brian said. It just has to scatter light well, but it's still going to take a lot of photons. We've got all these lasers, Tyler said, shrugging. Can't we use them somehow? Hmm, Brian said. I'm getting an idea crazy enough to be one of yours. I'll need to talk to Nathan about it. Which is? Tyler asked. 
You're always being mysterious, Brian said, waggling his fingers. My turn. Bastard. Okay, Tyler said. That's pretty damn crazy. We call it the dragon's orb, Nathan said proudly. The dragon's orb was a 100-meter diameter sapphire that, yes, was held in place by what appeared to be an amazingly huge dragon's claw extruded from the bay wall. A simple BDA laser powered it. There were microscopic flecks of platinum mixed into the sapphire that scattered the sunlight. The result was a light bulb big enough to illuminate the entire main bay. Shuttles and tugs floated everywhere. Well, almost everywhere. There were lines of red floating lights that marked laser paths. The ships kept well clear of those. Making it was good practice for extruding the control levers, Nathan continued. We're going to start the first heat on those next week. We've determined we need at least three, preferably six, and they're going to be long enough to nearly meet in the middle, so things will get a bit more crowded. Firing lanes? Tyler asked. Going slow, Nathan admitted. Mostly because of all the material we have to extract. And then there's the jogs. Creating lines that went straight into the interior was a recipe for disaster. Some knucklehead in an X-wing was bound to come along and drop an energy torpedo into your main power plant, and everyone knows how that ends. So the firing lanes, missile, and laser had zigzags built into them. For the lasers, that was relatively easy. Just drill to a certain point, clear it out, put in a VDA mirror, and bounce off that. Managing the drilled material was a pain in the butt, but it was doable and it had a ton of heavy metals already partially processed. The missiles that were planned for the Troy were only two and a half meters wide, but they were 15 meters long. The zigzag point, therefore, had to be large enough for the missiles to go sideways, and the tubes themselves had to be at least three meters. That was a lot of nickel iron to melt. Then there's the blast doors, Nathan continued grab plates to move the missiles. We're on schedule, though, Tyler said. Troy will be minimally operational in six months? Barely, Nathan said. If we can get the quarters installed, just drilling out the plug. I know, I know, Tyler said, sighing. I hate fiddly bits. Crew quarters for 4,030 shuttle crews is not fiddly bits. Nathan protested. And then there's the magazine for 200,000 missiles, which are going to take longer to produce than we spent building this thing. Have you said 2.2 trillion tons to yourself lately? Tyler said, grinning. The door was fiddly bits. I knew it was big, Senator LaMarche said. But this is... Tyler grinned and took a sip of champagne. He could afford it. He'd gotten the first installment on Troy. The junket for the visit by the Joint Chiefs and the Select Armed Services Committee had been a nightmare to arrange, which is why he'd left it up to his Washington people. 
The government had moved to St. Louis while the capital was being rebuilt, which was going slow since they were still working on plans to fill in Lake Washington. But they were still Washington people. One of the big sticking points was what to use as a conveyance. BAE had finally finished the Constitution, and the Joint Chiefs wanted to take that. Tyler pointed out that with the higher acceleration of the Starfire, it was quicker and more comfortable. As usual with government, they'd compromised. The group had gone out to the Troy on the Constitution, which gave the captain and the admirals a chance to show it off, then transferred to the Starfire, which could fit in one of the Constitution's bays. With almost the entire starboard wall of the Starfire being optical sapphire, the view was more than startling. The problem with the surface of Troy, though, was that it was just too hard to grasp. When they entered the main port, after the Constitution had had time to go in and poke around its future home, it was different. Columbia shuttles and paws provided some perspective, and the Constitution had been moved down to a safe zone on the far side of the main bay. That really gave some perspective since the battlecraft, as big as a skyscraper, looked just like the toy used for comparison in various videos. What are they doing over there? Senator Gullick asked, pointing down in relation to the dragon's orb. Changes were still reverberating through the body politic over the losses suffered in the Horvath attacks, especially since the last census. The plagues and the two Horvath bombardments had erased a vast swath of the citizenry of the United States. The amount of damage the world sustained should have, by most lights, thrown it into a universal failed state. However, it was pointed out that, relative to population size, the losses were barely half what Germany and Japan had suffered in World War II. There should at least have been a massive depression, but the world was so bent on rebuilding and rearming that money flowed. Factories had to be rebuilt. Places had to be found for the displaced population, and a nation that was experiencing a baby boom could be a surprisingly upbeat place. Despite the fact that the attacks had been a calamity beyond imagination, entrenched political groups had resisted for nearly two years any major changes in industrial and environmental policy. Detroit was Detroit, even if it was a crater, and that was where the major auto companies had to be. That, at least, was the position of the powerful multi-term congressman from that district, who was bound and determined to keep industry where it was supposed to be, no matter how much tax money it took. Then the decade rolled around. The census was done. The nation was redistricted. The lawsuits flew and the arguments got down to fisticuffs in state houses across the nation. And there was no district of Detroit and the car belt. It was gone. It was absorbed into the much more conservative districts that made up the bulk of Michigan's space. It was like that everywhere. Nine districts in the L.A. basin became one. Five San Francisco Bay districts were merged. California, overall, had gone from 53 districts to 35. And things began to move. Environmental restrictions on brownfield construction were slagged. 
The entire Endangered Species Act was slagged because, in the words of the senior senator from Tennessee, the most endangered species in this solar system is Homo sapiens. When we've got that fixed, we can worry about the snail darter. Gullick was Massachusetts' junior senator, a firebrand hawk whose campaign slogan had been simply, Vengeance. He'd launched his campaign on the rim of the crater that used to be Boston. He won in a landslide. Tyler had avoided getting entangled as much as he could. He was still registered in New Hampshire, but he'd been in Wolf during the last election and voted absentee. He'd been sure to provide as much graft, sorry, campaign finance money, as he legally could, and various gray areas. He almost needn't have worried. The new crop of congressmen and senators wanted the money, no question. They had to have it to get reelected. But they were almost deferential to the man who had not only created Earth's one real defense, the sapple, but had personally engaged the Horvath in battle and damn near died from decompression because of it. We're constructing one of the maneuvering levers, Tyler said gesturing with his chin to the patch of cherry-red metal. They're not technically in the specifications. We figured out it had to have them when we were making it. Like the horns, Congresswoman McIntyre said, nodding. The recent winner of Maryland's third district, which included Lake Baltimore, was a veteran of the Iraq War. She had a heavily scarred right cheek and one arm that was prosthetic as souvenirs. She had run on a defense-first campaign. Actually, getting them to work will require a lot of power and a lot of grav plates, Tyler said. We won't be able to rotate it until we have about 60 tons of grav plates and the power for them. That's about 60 terawatts per minute. The entire Earth consumes 4 terawatts per year, for comparison. And it will only rotate at about 30 feet per second. If nobody has mentioned it, Senator Gullick said. We appreciate the power plants Apollo has been installing. Everything's still pretty messed up, but cheap power helps. I wish there was more I could do, Tyler said, shrugging. But that was just a good long-term investment. I'll admit my shareholders screamed about amortizing the plants over 50 years, but they should last at least that long. And when Wolf comes online, I'll be able to drop the price of electricity even more. It's important, Senator LaMarche said. More and more electric cars with these new nanny capacitors. They're using a lot of power. Of course, coal is a very important supplier as well, he added quickly. He was the senior senator from Pennsylvania, which still mined a lot of coal. Of course, Tyler said, trying not to grin. I was actually thinking about concrete plants, Senator Gullick said. They use an enormous amount of power, and we can't build them fast enough. And over there? He asked, pointing to an area on the wall where dozens of tugs clustered. That was why I wanted to schedule this trip for today, Tyler said. That is where we're going to be installing the Turnkey Operations Center. It has quarters for crew, shuttle bays, the main command center which is initially going to be using only 10% of its allotted space and resupply docks. We've cut the plug for it and are going to be pulling it out. Plug? Congresswoman McIntyre asked. 
First, we drilled a 30-meter hole 300 meters into the wall, Tyler said. It was the first time I was happy we didn't get Troy to full size. There's still a good kilometer of nickel on the outside of the command center. Then we installed a reflector mirror and cut from within the hole to slice out the back. In the meantime, we cut out the edges. Where are the cuts? Senator Gullick asked. Here, Tyler said, handing him a set of binoculars. If you look down and to the left of the cluster of tugs, you should be able to spot the initial 30-meter hole. Oh, my God, the senator said, laughing. It's a dot. Yeah, Tyler said, and the cut lines are only 80 millimeters on a side, so you're going to have a hard time spotting them. But he paused as he listened to his implant. Right. They're going to engage the tugs. We're pretty sure we got all the edges cut out, but if not, we'll have to do some more drilling. In the light from the dragon's orb, the rippling effect of the tug's engines could be seen distorting the light. It was reflected in a waterfall of prismatic colors on the inner wall of the battle station, the ripples of color reflecting and shining in a rainbow of light. That is pretty, Congresswoman McIntyre said. I hadn't expected it to be pretty. Neither had I, Tyler said. The effect was damned pretty, beautiful even. And while there was immense satisfaction in the jobs he'd been doing, beauty, except for the unchanging star field, was rare. I just realized that if we ever can rotate this thing, it's going to have that same effect. Rotate hell, Senator Gullick said. What's it going to take to get this thing mobile? Senator, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said, we'd prefer to keep our defenses up, thank you. Hell with that, Gullick said. The best defense is a good offense. The Glatun negotiator on the multilateral talks should be shot. It's worse than Chamberlain. When we lose E-era Danny, the Harvath will have nothing to prevent them from attacking at any time. The combination of attacks against Earth had gotten the Glatun to at least provide assurances that no more Horvath ships would be allowed through the E-era Danny system. When... At this point, not if. They ceded it to the Horvath. Earth might as well get ready for a pounding. Senator, Tyler said delicately, 2.2 trillion tons. The constitutions, for way of comparison, mass 300,000 tons. Six orders of magnitude difference, and we have a hard time getting them to have more than five gravities of acceleration. The door is one billion metric tons, and it took every tug in the system four hours to get it open. If we can't secure E-era Danny, we're still open to attacks, the senator said. I think that the Troy is amazing and vital. Don't get me wrong. I also think it's worth looking at making it mobile. You're usually the big idea guy, Mr. Vernon. Don't tell me you haven't thought of it. Well... Tyler said, hanging his head and towing at the rug in embarrassment. You're kidding, Admiral de Graff said, then belly laughed. You haven't. 
I've been setting aside 10% of all extracted platinum group since we started, Tyler said. It's getting to be a pretty big pile. How big? Senator LaMarche asked. Not big enough for the power plant we'd need, Tyler said, shrugging. But it's getting bigger every day we work on Troy. We need 2,000 tons. 2,000 tons of platinum? DeGraff said, guffawing again. Oh, Tyler, you're killing me. You're not seriously thinking of making this thing mobile. We can't produce the grab plates, Tyler said, shrugging, or the secondary power converters. We need an enormous amount of both, about 200 years' worth of production based on current soul system output, and, of course, more osmium than has ever been mined in the history of the human race, possibly in the history of the spiral arm. Most efficient power plant material. Do you want to know how much fuel it will consume to go through the gate and into E. Iridani? No, Senator Lamarche said. Yes, I guess I do. Just because the entire question is so absurd. Think of all the buildings we lost, sorry, in New York and Washington, Tyler said, in one pile, and made of helium-3 which we don't even produce yet. That's three hours fuel at one-sixteenth gravity of acceleration. That exceeds the requirements for the 600-ship fleet we're envisioning, DeGraff said, for about 90 years. So, yes, Tyler said, I have thought of it. There are some alternatives. We could use an Orion drive, but I'd really rather not have to irradiate the surface and such a drive is vulnerable to damage. I mean, more damage. Orion is damaged in big numbers just as it exists. The big problem remains that we don't have any onboard weapons that match the defenses, not by dozens of orders of magnitude. So if I can get the grav plates for about 600 Glatton super dreadnoughts, a power plant the size of a small city, and a laser emitter system that can match 200 VDAs in power, we can get it to move at the pace of a very anemic snail and gut any fleet stupid enough to come in range, he finished with a grin. I withdraw the question, Senator Gullick said. We can't even figure out how to fill the magazines you've got planned, DeGraff said, shaking his head. Not with any sort of reasonable budget. Are any of the defenses online yet? Congresswoman McIntyre asked. Uh, Tyler said, sort of. We have one laser firing port and collimator installed and testing. We're finding that there are all sorts of bugs. The channel has to be in vacuum, and when we cut the firing lanes, there was all sorts of microscopic material left behind, not to mention trace atmosphere. So we're going to have to grab sweep each of the ports. We're building bots for that in the wolf system at the moment. Once the lanes are swept and we reinstall the focal systems, blast doors, and collimator, it'll be able to fire. We're still waiting on Boeing for missiles. Looks like you're having trouble, Senator LaMarche said. The tugs were reconfiguring towards the center of the plug, which still wasn't out. Argus? Tyler said. Status on the plug? There are spot-welted points in numerous places, Argus replied. I'm preparing to do a cut. 
We're moving the tugs to prevent confliction. I'm going to have them pull as we're cutting. This should be much more interesting, Tyler said. What is? Congresswoman McIntyre started to say, Oh, my God. Seven VDA mirrors were floating in a vaguely rectangular array within the main bay. Sapple power being fed to them by more VDAs aligned alongside the door. The congresswoman's exclamation, and she wasn't the only one, was from the sight of all seven opening up at once. There was just enough atmosphere in the bay for the beams to be, for once, visible. They were incandescent lines of fire burning into the refractory nickel iron, portions of which went bright white at the very touch of the petawatt beams. The enormous chunk of nickel iron finally started to move, but the beams continued to cut, ensuring that no more spot welds formed as it was removed. Those tugs, Senator Gullick said, they're about the size of the paws, right? Two stories high, about five long? Most of them, Tyler said, some larger. The cluster of 60 tugs was centered in about one-third of the area of the plug being removed, which just kept coming and coming and coming. That's the size of a stadium, Senator LaMarche said. A big stadium. Um, Tyler said, bigger, much bigger. 600 meters long, 400 high, 300 deep twice the length of a supercarrier, about the same length as a constitution. The plug is going to have to be removed entirely and then cut. We're planning on almost totally sealing the center within the wall. So we'll put a 50-meter thick section of nickel iron back on top of it, maybe steel. We're working on some really big steel projects, but welding it is tough. Then we'll get to work processing the plug for materials. I thought there was supposed to be shuttle bays, Senator Gullick said. How are you going to get the shuttles in and out? Uh, Tyler said, really big doors? That's going to take longer to do than pulling the plug and cutting. <laughs> I hate fiddly bits. That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Jane Linscold, and thanks to DJ Butler for hosting the conversation today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>